0: Hi, I'm Gary Jubelin. As a subscriber, you're listening to the latest episode of I Catch Killers before anyone else. Thanks for taking out the subscription. Enjoy this episode of the podcast first. Welcome back to part two of my chat with Jaren Badgent on I Catch Killers. Jaren is an Aboriginal lady who grew up in and around the block at Redfern and joined the New South Wales Police in the hope of making a difference to the way her people are treated by police. In part one, you got an insight into how knowledgeable Jaron is in regards to Aboriginal issues and policing. In the second part, we're going to discuss some very topical subjects at the moment in and around the Black Lives Matter protest. So let's get started. All right. Uh, welcome back to uh, part two of I Catch Killers and our, our guest today, Jaron Badgent. Jaron, fascinating stories you've told us first up, and we're going to get into some uh, issues that I'd like to get your opinion on, um, looking at from not only the police point of view, but also uh, as an Aboriginal person and uh, some of the contentious issues that are happening in the world at the moment. Before we do, you talked about when you went back to Redfern in, in uniform, and uh, at that particular point in time, you'd been working in the surveillance branch and basically the surveillance branch, if you're a good surveillance operation uh, operator, no one sees you. Correct. And so that's what you've been training for and you're almost invisible and you can uh, follow people and do that. You've gone straight from that back into uniform. How did that feel?
1: Oh, it was harrowing. It was really tricky. Um, yeah, you've gone from being um, deliberately invisible as a person as much as possible um to and, and that sort of infiltrates into how you live your life as well. You tend to live your life like that um when you're going through that. Um and yeah, so then next minute you're in uniform in public on public transport. Yeah, it was I found myself really nervous. Um and we, we caught a train and I was standing on the train with my back against the wall in the furthest corner because it was just so uncomfortable for me.
0: And uncomfortable, why, in that, uh, you know, people are looking at you? or
1: Yeah, well, all of a sudden you're just visible again and people can see you and not just see you but they're looking at you. So um, when you go from the opposite end of the spectrum to that, yeah, it's, it takes a bit to get used to it. I remember putting the uniform on and just going, I can't walk out of here, like, <laughs> what, what do <laughs> yeah, I do and with it's this? It's not a
0: target in the sense of someone's going to attack you, but no. the tar- target in that... Uh, uh, people are going to walk up to you, ask for advice and uh, people you know, will make comments.
1: Yeah, or even say, you know, how you going and thank you for your service. You yeah. get that too. It was just a bit of a – it was it was different. It took a transition period to get back used to that.
0: Yeah. I, I know on rare occasions in early parts of my career when I was in uniform and uh, you'd go to big events and uh, where and people would be coming up to you and asking for advice on where to get, how to get here and everything about you – you're a policeman, so you can solve every problem yep. that they've got. So Directions as well. <laughs> it, is, it is confronting, but that's that's wearing that blue uniform.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And you must have, the same feeling that you had been um, virtually invisible as a surveillance operative, it also must be a little bit conflicting when you've identified yourself and recognised yourself as an Aboriginal person also putting on a blue uniform, walking around the streets where you grew up as a kid.
1: Yeah, that was really, that amplified that feeling as well. Yeah. Um, I vividly remember the first time that I put on a police uniform and walked down Everly Street, so past the railway station and down to Everly Street and, you know, looking around and just saying like, you know, back when I was a kid, there's no way in the world I ever would have thought that I'd be standing here like this. You know, next to the preschool that I went to that my family started and, you know, historical place with all of this history. There's no way in the world that I would have ever thought that I'd be standing there
0: in uniform. It must have been a surreal experience.
1: Yeah, it was. And I felt a bit... um Oh, I took a selfie, I'm not going to lie, and I felt a bit vain doing it <laughs> uh, just for myself just because it was one of those moments and um, it was when the flag, the big flag, was still down the block. Yeah. So, you know, just having that visual um, flag there too. Yeah, it, it was. It was a really surreal moment.
0: Have you still got that selfie? I might. <laughs> <laughs> we might have a chat after this. Yeah. Um, there was another experience you had at Redfern when uh, I think it's uh, with uh, one of the riots, It was the anniversary of um,
1: yeah, yep. what happened
0: to Hickey, yep. and you were in, in forming in the police lines up against the, the protesting crowd. Do you want to talk us through that?
1: Yeah, sure. I think um, just back to the uniform thing too. I think it, for me as well, um, despite the history and despite my insights, like I always felt proud to wear a police uniform. Like mm. that was important to me, and to wear it knowing that what I was doing was the right thing. Yeah. So um, even though I had all of those nervous feelings when I went back from COVID to uniform, for me putting on a uniform meant something. I
0: I think that's that's an important thing to say because I'm sort of – identified as a detective that doesn't wear the uniform. But I'm very proud of the, the being a police officer I was when I was a police officer and wearing the uniform. It's nothing to be ashamed of wearing the uniform. It's just from a personal point of view, yeah. you stand out. Yeah,
1: you do. Yeah, yeah it was that, yeah. But I, I still always, you know... I, I was one of these people that had to have their boots polished well, and you know, like I, I had to present. You know, I I yeah. was proud of what I was yeah, wearing, of course, so of course. there was pride in that for me yeah. because I knew that what I was doing was the right
0: thing. Well, I think it says a lot when you see someone that's uh, in police uniform and they're they're looking the the real deal. It makes an impact, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, there's pride in what you're doing. Yeah, so and that goes down to you as a person. Like if you wake up and you're proud of what you're doing in that day, that says everything. It carries a lot. It does. Yeah. But, yeah, the, so the, the, the TJ Hickey protest it was and it was an anniversary protest.
0: And just if you could talk from uh, your understanding of it, the TJ Hickey, what that was all about.
1: Yeah, so um, the incident itself. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't obviously in the police force at that stage but uh, my knowledge of the incident was that, you know, a young man was chased by police and he died from being impaled on a fence. Mm. Um, there was inquiries that found that there was... Um, nothing that the police did to cause that death and community feel otherwise and, yeah. and that's where we and find that, ourselves that today. That's where the
0: animosity will.
1: Correct. Is. And that's yeah. where we find ourselves today. But I think the the key thing in this is that a young man died and he died in horrific circumstances. And no matter what people's theories are on exactly what happened, at the end of the day a child died. And that's that's what needs to be acknowledged and remembered. Um the particular uh, protests that you're talking about that I was at, we'd had peaceful discussions. Our command had had peaceful discussions with community and, and protest organisers. And I think it's important to know that not all people that turn up to these protests are from community. That's, that's another mm. thing. You know, they come from all different places. And before the protests started, you know, I, I knew a lot of people that were part of that protest and I fully supported what, what it was that they were doing. Yep. And, you know, we walked alongside one another. And Mm. that was what was happening, but I think um, there was one particular lady. She was an older, middle-aged white
0: lady who was. So you're in your police uniform. I'm in uniform,
1: yeah, full uniform. The police
0: have been called there for the protest.
1: Well, any protest has a police presence. Yeah, you've got police there. Yeah, Yeah. and at that stage, there was no issues between police and protesters. And and you know, this protest had been happening every year since the incident yeah. and as time had gone on, those discussions between protests and the police, you know, you've got to get approval for these kinds of marches and stuff. And so that had all, those processes had already taken place with senior police. Yeah. Um, it was just this one particular lady we where the protest was walking and as I said, I was walking alongside protesters because I knew them. We <laughs> were family and there was no issues around that. But this one particular lady just wouldn't follow a direction which was please don't walk into oncoming traffic. A pretty simple, simple. direction. And she'd been told by many police officers, can you not walk on the, on the wrong side of the road? You, not only are you going to get hit by a car, but we've asked you not to do it. Yeah. And um, she decided not to ignore that. And when I asked her for however many times she'd been asked to get off the wrong side of the road... Um, she had a flag and she started screaming at me and she, you know, dressed in red, black and yellow. Um, An
0: Aboriginal flag?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Aboriginal flag, um, which, by the way, is now owned by a non-Aboriginal company, but it's a whole separate (laughs) issue, that one. And she started screaming at me that I was a murderer of Aboriginal babies. And it was where the point that she had said that, the actual location, geographic location Mm. that we were standing at, was within a couple of hundred metres from the preschool on the block that my family had started. And I just, it was one of those moments in time that you just say to yourself, you can't even make this stuff up.
0: Yeah, you, you couldn't make that up. Imagine trying to stop. Can I just explain something and point yeah. to the, the kindergarten? It just wouldn't work. So no, but it, it also- would have been, it's quite, it, the irony wouldn't have been lost on you standing there in police uniform being yelled at. Absolutely like not
1: lost on me, but I looked around and, you know, saw people and they're looking at me and it, that look at people that I knew, obviously, yeah. and they were like, oh God. I don't think anyone knew what to do with that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah.
0: But it gave you, I suppose, an interesting perspective from a police point of view too.
1: It definitely did, and you know the the police that I worked with that day did a good job. Like yeah. the relationship, as I said, there was it had been previously discussed that the protest was going to happen. There was no issues with that. I think it's just when um, the the trouble, the problems lie when you've got people that don't understand the ongoing discussions and don't get me wrong I'm speaking about that moment in time what's happened since then things would have changed daily so yeah
0: yeah. I think and it was pleasing that time that uh, we marched uh, with the Barraville protest I I thought the police the way they handled themselves was very well yeah on on that occasion and very respectful of what was going on and it was uh, it was heartening to see from uh, a police point of view yeah. To, to see that because I didn't know how they were going to react. I think both you and I were standing there nervous. We're in the protest and we're not cops anymore.
1: Exactly, and, and my partner Simon as well. Yeah, he, yeah. he was the same. So yeah. I, there was one point that myself, you and Simon and my children were, we were the back line at one point, I yeah. think, and behind us was um, the horses. Yeah, and I just looked around and was like, yeah, this is this is one of those moments. Like,
0: yeah, it was pretty strange, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yep. yeah. Look, that leads us in nicely to talk about a, a couple of things that are, that are going on that uh, are pretty, uh, pretty intense and uh, the uh, incident over in America with uh, George Floyd yep. and what's happened there and the, the protests and the – it's. It seems to be more than just a protest on, on what's happened there and what happened there is horrific and from my point of view as a police officer I'm embarrassed that uh, what happened and that's probably not saying it's strong enough that uh, seeing uh, someone killed in that fashion by people that are out there to protect, it was just horrific. But um, do you have an understanding or what's your thoughts on the, the uprising and the, the, the angst and anger uh, within the community?
1: In, in America? And we're talking America. Yeah, yeah. I just think that... Um, when you have a system of oppression, which is what Americans are saying has happened, African American, black community in America in particular, and what we've seen, and, you know, certainly that fits what I've seen coming out of there, then if you continually oppress a people over a period of time and disempower, it's like a vo- volcano is going to erupt mm. and now it's out of control. Yeah. Um and that incident I couldn't even watch that it absolutely sickened me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there there is no excuse for it is it no. uh, when you see something like that but no. uh, the anger and uh now and uh, the timing of the situation and then uh the, oh, a couple of days ago we see the footage uh circulate of the uh, young aboriginal um teenager yep. uh, I think he's 16 years of age um thrown on the ground by a police officer now. That's an area that you've worked You know the community. Um, Of all people, you've entitled to an opinion on it. And uh, can you give us your thoughts on it, looking at it, if you can, from a police point of view but also from the Aboriginal point of view?
1: I think – well, that was Surrey Hills, so it was a different – it was the command over. But um, in terms of community, like just as an Aboriginal person, as a police officer, wearing – if I was to wear both hats regardless – what I saw in that video really hurt me, yep, um, and I found it very upsetting um I think that it definitely could have been handled differently mm. um and you know I trust that that you know the appropriate action will be taken um in looking at what the reaction was,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. do you think uh the fact that the Boy, was Aboriginal, that play the part in it?
1: Well, yeah, I think that potentially we've got to look at things like what we were talking about earlier in terms of standards for our own kids, mm. and if that was my child, how would I respond to a to police interacting with my child in that way? Also, we've got to look at how my child is interacting with police. Yes, yeah. and there's no, you know, I know that that's been a strong opinion in, in certain places. Um, but in terms of being adults, whether we're police or not and children, which is what they are and, and granted they're teenagers and some of these teenagers are bigger than, you know, fully grown adults. So that's not to not be acknowledged, but how do we want our children to be treated? Mm. Our own kids that grow up in our own homes, how do we want them to be treated and does that fit that standard? Yeah. That's what needs to be asked.
0: Yeah. And uh, look, I, I think too from a police point of view, I, I look at it and, yeah, we've seen a snippet and yep. I, I think both you and I have been around long enough to understand that, yeah, there's past two sides to the stories we don't understand. I'm just looking at the, s- the snippet that I've seen, uh, seen released and uh, the policing is about um, control and, and restraint and uh, at that particular point in time what I saw it was someone that was uh, restrained um, at that point so it's a, it's an ugly situation but I, I hope it doesn't set things back and I might be a little bit naive in saying even setting things back because you might say well that's still been going on I'd like to think that um, yeah we had improved relationships between uh, police and aboriginals what's what's your thoughts there
1: Well, there's a couple of things there Um, and I agree with you. I hope it doesn't hurt relationships either. But on the other hand, how can it not? You Mm. know, people are going to have feelings about children and young people, Mm. you know, having certain interactions. But at the same time, I know that community leaders and community would not want to see any deterioration there. So it's got to be another... Um, like everyone's got to come to the party on this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's one part of it. The other thing too is that um, we've had a merging of police stations recently, a restructure, which yeah. means that Redfern Command that I worked in is no longer the same. It's now South Sydney Command and that's brought in a whole lot of police from other areas that may or very unlikely to have had any contact um, or awareness about how policing works in Redfern. Now, that incident didn't happen in that command, yeah, so I yeah. want to make that clear. Yeah. I'm just speaking on on what I know about yeah. what's happened with the restructure. What I think needs to happen is localised um, cultural awareness training and what I mean by that is there is a package where all police are trained um, across the board in touching on some subjects that we've already talked about yep. today, um, historical issues around relationships and so on and so forth. Um, where I don't know, where I think it would be more beneficial would be to go and ask the community that you're actually working in mm. and to make those inroads there because Burke is not like Redfern and Redfern is not like Cow and Cowra is not like Maury and everybody has their own. Ind-
0: individual problems so we can't just blanket That's the, right. The...
1: And, and also each place has its own strengths and there are strengths in every community across this country. So mm. if my advice to police or how I would like to see um, things change in that capacity is that it's not just high levels in certain areas that are having conversations, and I hope they're having conversations with yeah. community leaders, but that it happens at all different levels and it goes all the way down to the ground so that everybody involved, community are aware of this, um, so that all people involved understand exactly what's at stake and how important this is. Yeah,
0: it is, is important and I, I do hope we get it right, but I it thinks I some creative thinking perhaps, yep. like with Redfern when the problems were there and it was a localised problem, and they dealt with it as a local problem and, and changed things and improved things, and maybe you're right. Maybe that's the way it uh, it should be looked at.
1: Definitely, so. and there is, an, you know, valuing the expertise of Aboriginal police officers. I mean, we talked about my journey. Yeah. Um, my journey as an Aboriginal woman in the police force is not unique. Other yeah. Aboriginal people have skill sets that other police officers simply don't have.
0: Do you think... Two parts to this question. Do you think we should utilise the skills and knowledge of Aboriginal police officers? And second part, is it fair on those individuals to be used in that capacity?
1: I think that if we are going to use pathways like iProud to recruit Aboriginal people, then there's already an acknowledgement that Aboriginal people bring a a different, unique skill set to the job. So the acknowledgement's already happened before they've even gone into the police force. Right. Needs to happen after that is a valuing of that skill set, and a further acknowledgement of it. Um, and yes, it is probably going to come down to an individual's choice as to whether or not they want to take that on but when you and you're asked the question are you aboriginal before you go in there so you know that that's a part of the job description maybe not the job description but what you're applying for you've identified yourself as an aboriginal police officer
0: so use use the skills or use the knowledge exactly
1: and it's it's difficult i mean imagine when you are a skilled cop who's been in the job for a certain period of time you know that your workload's bigger if you're working in certain areas and it's not acknowledged i mean if this was something like you know investigators course or some other skill that's that's recognized on sap then you're valued for that but this you're not valued for it yet you're key You're absolutely pivotal to what is happening.
0: Yeah. I I think in in conversations, informal chats I've had with you, uh, part of your frustration was that the the knowledge base that you had um, working in an area like Redfern that could have perhaps been better utilised. Definitely. Yeah.
1: Um, Absolutely. And it's got to be said as well that, you know, Aboriginal people have varying degrees in their journey as an Aboriginal person as well. So the expectation can't be that everybody is where has the where same I'm set at. of skills. Yeah. And and you know, I'm in, on my journey too. There are people that were in the job that were tra- trailblazers for me that opened up doors as Aboriginal police officers and their stories are mind-blowing. Yeah. You know, you've got 20, 30 years service there and they the thing is, you're an Aboriginal police officer, you don't you might Clock off from work, but as you know, you don't cease to be a cop. Mm. But before you're a cop, you're an Aboriginal person. You don't cease to be Aboriginal community. Don't not call you because you're not at work.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a valid point. And I'm sure you copped a lot of those calls and knocks on the door at uh...
1: all. I still get it. Yeah, I every day.
0: (laughs) I'm I'm still getting calls from people, and I've got to point out that uh,
1: I might have to send the cops an invoice.
0: We could outsource. <laughs> we'll, we'll try that. I'm sure that'll go over well. Was it during your time at uh, Redfern that you got, um, there was a comment that you did some work up in the Northern Territory?
1: Yep. So um, in 2016, a Royal Commission um, inquiry was launched into what happened after Four Corners had reported on Dondale Prison in the Northern Territory, which is a juvenile prison facility. And Do you
0: know what... what- specific area that the Four Corners were covering?
1: They were looking at what happened with a young man named Dylan Voller and they reported on a riot that um, happened inside the Dondale facility Um, and it was caught on CCTV and Four Corners did an entire report on their findings around the treatment of young people in that place Um, and then it it sort of branched out into a, um, a Royal Commission into uh, juvenile detention in the Northern Territory, but also child protection because the two are very linked and connected. So that was what the Royal Inquiry and, was and about. And
0: the focus on uh, Aboriginal uh, children?
1: It was on Aboriginal children, right. yes.
0: okay. Yep. And so what was your role?
1: So at the time, I was still um, a youth officer in Redfern in the CMU unit and um, what had happened was I was a request was sent from the Royal Commission to the New South Wales Police Commissioner requesting my assistance in collecting um, statements and stories from community for the inquiry. Um, so that's what my soul, the reason why I went up there.
0: And it was a specific request for Specific for request and, for me, yeah. On, on what basis? What My skill what, set. What the skill set? Yeah. yeah. Oh, don't be humbled. <laughs>
1: okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah, just, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, that the unique skill set that Aboriginal people bring yeah. to a role like policing, that skill set was acknowledged by the Royal Commission. And right. they requested that I go and work up there specifically on that.
0: Okay. And what did you do up there?
1: I initially... Um, It was actually really tricky. I had, at the time, I had two small children. Um, I now have three. So at the time, I was torn because I knew that an inquiry was going to be, you know, at least months. Mm. Um, And initially, I was reluctant to take the role because I didn't want to be away from my family. So I... Made arrangements for them to come with me, and and from then I was really set in in contributing. Um, I was nervous in the sense that I knew these stories were going to be incredibly sensitive, but uh, I felt uh, reassured because I I'm confident in my skill set. I know that so I. So you speak were actually like
0: extracting the stories and interviewing uh, people that had been involved in what had taken place and getting their their stories. Yes. Okay. Yep.
1: That's what I went up there for. So when I got up to Darwin, which is where I was first based, it was about um, what where I saw the value was in understanding the relationship, which is something that I obviously understand very well in New South Wales or at least in Sydney mm. or Redfern and um, the places I'd worked. So understanding what that cycle of incarceration actually was for young people and it started all the way back before police are arresting kids. Um, And that that was something that I learned. So two things that I started off when I first touched down in Darwin was um, I needed to understand the law and legislation around youth offending. So I spent time learning that and really researching that. And obviously I was looking at that through a police lens, how that's being applied, how it should be applied, how it could be applied. Um, also geographically how police are, what barriers they're dealing with, remote communities and so on and so forth, wet season, dry season, stuff that we don't have to deal with in New South yeah. Wales. Uh, but what the other barrier I found was that the cultural appropriateness for me going up there into communities that are not my own and asking really hard questions around very sensitive and deeply traumatic stories from and
0: communities. Is that just ignorance from um, people that don't understand? That yes. uh, Assuming that you're Aboriginal, therefore you can go into an Aboriginal community?
1: No, I think because there were a lot of Aboriginal people on the Royal Commission, including yep. one of the commissioners was an Aboriginal man, Mick Gooda, a person that I respect deeply. Um, I think it was more that they understood. I think they had faith in my ability to see where my strength was and apply it there and in the end. At the time, I, w- I had gone to them and said, "I'm not the right person for this. I think you need to get someone from here to do it." Mm. And they didn't, and I had to think about where it was that I could have actual impact into looking at what the issues are here, and that's what I did. So I ended up working entirely on a separate project that I wrote myself.
0: And what was the project focus on?
1: So um, I felt very uncomfortable as an Aboriginal woman going into communities where i felt like it was not right that i was asking certain questions and when you say ignorance like i think that is an ignorance that people don't acknowledge when they're working in the service sector where, where like social workers and ngos and go- even government organizations child protection government workers they it's like by virtue of their role there's an expectation that i'm asking you this question so you've just got to answer it yeah. because i'm this is my job and it's you not look quite at that it. Simple. No, it's not. And you put the shoe on the other foot to that person who is in a family that's had some serious trauma around what it is that person's asking them about. It's about their children, their family, their kids going to jail, like mm. children being removed. Um, yeah, like just so many layered issues with that. And it's almost you can see why people feel like there's no way they can win in this system. So what I ended up doing was just reevaluating what was missing in the Royal Commission and where I could apply my skills. So what I did was looked at what was happening with the police, what barriers are police facing because they've got a job to do. These things are happening for a reason why they're happening. So I wrote a project to go and work with the cops in the NT and right. that's what I did.
0: Okay. And with the high incarceration rate with the children and the cycle that starts at a very early age, yep. how, how is that or could that be broken? Um
1: there's a lot of things that are happening there. I think that, you know, it, it starts from the education system and children and people feeling valued and um, acknowledged in a system that might not necessarily speak to them. Like you've got kids that are not just bilingual. Some of those kids know five, six, seven languages. Um, it might not fit in a Western world but that's a really strong kid that knows that, that's connected yeah. to culture and, and thrives in their own community. Now you put that child in a school setting that was designed many years ago that doesn't necessarily fit that kid in, in that person in that kid's strengths. Yeah. You can see it's instantly. Yeah, you can see yeah. instantly where they're gonna hit barriers. Yeah. And um, I know that there's a lot of people in community up there that are working on these things. Um There is an Aboriginal school in Alice Springs uh, but, you know, you can see why across the board there's going to be issues straight away and then I think it it escalates in all different areas from that, all the way from disempowerment in a lot of different ways, remoteness again, health issues, employment. Uh, But what I noticed was that there was a lack of understanding from a police perspective, I did see that, Mm. but also um, the processes. You know, how is legislation being applied to young people, to afford them the best opportunity to get out of the system, and that should have been the key focus. But it was more about, and I and I think when you're policing and if you're junior, um, the bigger picture isn't clear.
0: Yeah. You've you got your job, you got your uh, task and you fulfil it, it and, and you're not you, looking at the bigger picture. That's
1: right and, you, you know, you answer to your supervisor and they sort of tell you what your taskings are and you do them. Mm. Uh, but, you know, if you've got a kid that's breached bail because they were next door from the location that they were supposed to be at, um, which is their auntie's house, like mm. if we're looking at – the level of offending there versus what an outcome is, like, you know, discretion. Like you really need another like, charge on, exactly. on him or... Is taking that yep. child and their children into custody, is that going to be beneficial for what the greater outcome is? Probably not.
0: Did you find it rewarding?
1: I found it really challenging. I found it deeply upsetting. Mm. Um, I found it incredibly humbling and, you know, I acknowledge how the community members that I worked with supported me and they didn't have to do that. I'm not from there and really I had no business being there but they saw they saw the values in what I could offer and I was honest with them with what I was there for and they supported me with that. But um, until the recommendations around that Royal Commissioner implemented in the Northern Territory, I just don't know how to feel about it.
0: Right, right. So there's a bit of uh, you feel like you went in, you made a... Ball tried to make a it change it's about having those changes implemented or yeah fully implemented
1: absolutely we still have 100 percent incarceration rate of aboriginal kids in jail in the northern territory
0: that's not good is it it's horrendous <laughs> it's, it's hard to even comprehend mm-hmm. when the, you break it down into those figures
1: Yep, and it wasn't just me you know there's a lot of people that work on a royal commission obviously so a lot of people sacrifice you know lots of law- legal teams that were away from their own families to invest in this and really wanted to see change as well. And most importantly, how a local community up there is supposed to feel.
0: Do you still hope that those changes will be implemented at some stage?
1: Yeah, I I hope. I, I mean, we're still waiting for changes to be made about Aboriginal deaths in custody. Yeah, so I don't I don't know how to feel about it.
0: So after coming back from uh, Northern Territory, back to Redfern, yep, you left the police.
1: I did, yeah. So my time in the territory, I learnt a lot about um, Indigenous incarceration of children as well. There's models in New Zealand that have a totally different model than we do in Australia. They they actually don't have jails, um, and youth officers, multi youth officers are are really trained to the nth degree. There's a lot of investment in that model. Um, And I'm speaking just from a red experience. I haven't been there and seen it. So, you know. But then there's a Canadian model as well. Um, So I I was able to look at how other things work elsewhere and then come back to Sydney. And the other thing too was that my um, project work on the Royal Commission contributed to those recommendations. So I felt like from an elevated level I had a bit of insight and experience and sat around some really important tables with some really serious discussions, uh, including, well, that was the other thing, I coordinated the police roundtables all across the Northern Territory for police officers in the NT to get their opportunity to make submissions directly to the commissioners. Mm. That wasn't in there before. So there wasn't a police voice. And when I came back to New South Wales, it was, you know, you're decompressing a long time. It takes a while yeah. to readjust. Yeah, well, the
0: intensity of what you experienced up there, I would imagine you do need to decompress.
1: Yeah, you do, um, but also like you... you you come back changed when you're working on these things and you go from being feeling like your skill set is seriously valued and then you go straight back into an environment where an expectation is that you just go back to how you were before but that's not the reality. Mm -hmm. Like I was in a role that was um, critically analysing Legislation and process, and why it wasn't working for our kids, and the sad part was, was that I found some of the same things yeah. here.
0: And so when you, I'm, I'm interpreting what you're saying when you came back with having all that responsibility up there and uh, and Northern Territory, then you've come back to uh, come back to the police, and yep. uh, the experience and uh, skill set that you had was possibly not recognised. Is as-
1: oh so. It, no, it wasn't recognised. Um, I mean, people knew that I worked on a commission, but there was no, yeah. no one even asked me how it was. <laughs> like mm. it was, there was no sort of like, what did you learn and how can we do it better here? No, none of those conversations, and I found that really frustrating. Not only my own command, but you know, when we're looking at youth policy, obviously, now I've got not only, I've got a lived experience as an Aboriginal kid interacting yeah. with police. I've got years of experience working the truck and other areas inside policing. On top of that, I've got years experience as a youth officer and I've worked on a Royal Commission and still I couldn't be heard. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we go back to that word, disempowerment, disempowerment. That's how I felt. Yeah. Um, yeah, lots to contribute and nowhere to put it.
0: It's a shame. It's a shame all those skills are lost from the uh, lost from the police. But uh, I know in conversations I've had with you before, you said that you felt you could do more good for your community and more good for your people outside the police.
1: Well, I felt like I'd hit a ceiling. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I readily offered my skills to be able to critically look at what we were doing here because the reality is while we don't have a 100% incarceration rate of Aboriginal children, um, young people, we're at 50%, yeah, which isn't good. When you look at the national population, we're not a great... We're 3% of the population and half the jail is full of our kids and half I think it's between thirty and forty yeah, percent or thereabouts the in adult jails. reflect like, badly, don't they? When you look at it horrendous. statistically. Yeah. yeah. And so for me it was still I felt like it was still a valuable thing to be able to analyse and look at what we're doing here. Um, you know, and, and there was big movements, there was youth strategies being rolled out in New South Wales. So it was it was readily available to have these conversations.
0: Mm. And you couldn't find a way to the table?
1: No, I couldn't. Yeah, I requested and I knocked and I emailed and I did my best to offer what I had yeah. for a long time and it just didn't happen. So then I started feeling like, well, how I can't waste what I know and and I say this with the the goal is not to bash anybody the goal is to stop kids from going to jail that was the primary reason that was driving me so what I ended up doing was you know I did get frustrated admittedly I was frustrated and you know I wasn't looking at any opportunities to promote or anything like that um even though I, I did want to so there was an opportunity for me to go and um acting in a sergeant's role at headquarters in the Aboriginal Employment Programs Unit, yeah. which goes back to proud. So that's something that I had worked on and been part Very of and felt. With. Yeah, and, you know, looking after uh, sworn police across the state. And I, I learned a lot in that role. Um, I was only there for a few months, maybe six months, I think. Yeah. Um, During that time, you know, wrote strategies around how, again, valuing the skill sets of sworn police, Aboriginal police officers. And, you know, the argument's always like, oh, but you've got Vietnamese police officers and you've got the... I know that, but I'm not Vietnamese. I'm Aboriginal. And so I understand my skill set and how it's not being utilised. And I know that I'm not the only Aboriginal police officer in the force. So we're looking at an entire untapped resource here. Yeah, That's what I was... What my position on it was. So, yeah... Uh, I fell pregnant with my third baby while I was in that role and, um, yeah, I went off on maternity leave having left mm. that role and I, I, once I went on maternity leave, I that was when I, um, I put in my resignation.
0: Mm. Well, one thing that uh, impressed me in, in all our meetings, but in the first meeting, that you, you left the police and uh, like most police officers, there's been different things within their career that uh, cause them frustration and uh, a little bit of resentment. But uh, you had such a positive outlook on it and uh, you're certainly not one that's coming out bashing the cops. And you you look back at your career and you you enjoyed your career. Would that be fair to say?
1: Really proud of my career. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't change any of it. Potentially I look at a lot of the things that I expected to have outcomes with. Maybe I was naive at understanding how thick this was. Yeah. But, yeah, no, very proud of it, wouldn't change any of it. It's who I am now, so.
0: And and could you, in good faith, recommend uh, joining the police to uh, anyone or, or even, uh, yeah, people from your community uh, where you I grew I struggle
1: up? with that um, yeah. because I understand. So my niece is looking at joining now yeah. and, yeah, um, she and her her mum was policewoman as well, Aboriginal right, policewoman, yep. and you know obviously she knows my career, so we're having some pretty deep talks with her about that and what it actually means, and she's going to have to be prepared. But if she understands and is armed with that knowledge and still makes that decision, then she has our full support.
0: Right. It's right. just
1: going to be difficult.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the the role has changed. You've had your you the your grandmother. Um, offering caution to you at the thought of joining the police.
1: It's so. exactly that same thing. Yeah. And, you know, back then Nan understood the system and how thick it was. She's worked in the in a government system herself. So yeah. she understood what I was going to face. Um, yeah. But I think at some point you've just got to understand that young people have been armed with the right tools, the right information, and then they've got to make their own decisions. Yeah. She's got our support, so.
0: Well, and look, we've, we've talked a lot about the perspective from uh, an Aboriginal and your, your time in the police, but uh, it does give you a broad range of experiences, doesn't it? life oh, yeah. experiences and in uh, yeah, just in, in the break that we had, you told the story and I won't embarrass you, but I might just give snippets of it when uh, you were chasing an offender and uh, oh, uh, God. jumped the I've fence. had
1: some of the best yeah. times, you know, like the friends that I've made in the police, I, I consider them like family. Yeah. Um, And I still have such deep respect for good cops in the job that I know and have worked with. And, yeah. you know, we had some of the best times, Yeah, you know, it's not a regular job. It's not cut out for everybody. You do have to, understand um a lot about society that you might not have before you went in there yeah. as well you've got to adapt um and you've got to be extremely resilient it takes a lot to be a police officer um but yeah like the good times the laughs the camaraderie i loved all that about the job
0: yeah yeah the, and the, i miss the, that
1: i do miss I, that I,
0: I i miss that too and uh yeah speaking to you to you uh, having retired the same time i did that there are aspects that you, you're glad that uh, you're out of the police, but there's other other aspects that you miss. But I think it's particularly interesting what you're doing outside of the police now, and uh, you've set up your set up your own business. And uh, have yeah. Do you want to talk us through that? Because I, I I think it's interesting and it just it taps into something I'm interested in.
1: Yep. So um, during my time in the Royal Commission, um, I need I, I realised that I needed something that centred me, like centred my spirit again because I think I just felt so... I felt so battered. There's no other way to describe it. I just felt really battered. Um, and, look, you know, as a youth officer, cops use the terminology that we're cake eaters and, you know, CMU, yeah, cake eater unit. Um, I'll just
0: explain that for the audience. That, um, there's <laughs> some, and I would never be party to this, but some operational uh, police would call the police that uh, not out on the streets the cake eaters because uh, from an operational point of view... Police officers' point of view, every time they come into the office, they seem to be eating cake, so hence the term cake eaters.
1: Fair cool. I don't mind my fair share of cake, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I would have to say that. Like, I was, you know, I worked my butt off, so yeah. it wasn't, a, you know, my shifts were longer in that youth role because I was there for a purpose. And, you know, going from what I had done previously to going into that role, yeah, I felt I, I probably worked harder in that youth role than any other roles i have been in before, truthfully. Yeah. But, yeah, so I, I needed something that grounded my spirit a bit and um, I am a bit of a, like, when it comes to training and sport and everything, I go pretty hard, footy league, all of that sort of and stuff. You,
0: you used to do a lot of the boxing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did all the boxing. Yeah.
1: Clean Slate Without Prejudice, that tribal warrior ran yeah, in partnership. Yeah, that
0: was so cool. That yeah. was really good. Yeah,
1: oh, free Three mornings a week, 6am or 7am and, you know, Uncle Shane and community had, there's up like around 100 people there three times a week yeah. supporting this program. It's incredible. It's been running for 10 years. It's in partnership with police. Like, yeah, so I did all, all the boxing and stuff as well and I just needed something that was a little bit kinder to myself and also I was just, I was really lacking connection to culture for me yeah. and I, for an Aboriginal person, that's where healing is. Um, And for non-Aboriginal people as well, connecting to spirit is is where healing is. And, you know, that's why we have an entire globe looking at yoga and looking at meditation and, you know, um, those kind of practices are the norm now. But what people don't understand is that we've been doing these practices here in Australia, in this country since you know, for 90,000 years. So I was like, how do we connect the two? Why are people going to India or China or Bali to do these retreats to connect to a culture not their own when we're mm. all in Australia and we have access to the oldest living culture on the planet? So I was like, yeah, yoga mats seem to be mm. the transition for me. Um, and also when I was in the NT, And in Sydney like I've got a lot of artists in my family and um, one of my aunties is an incredible artist and, you know, just seeing these stories where they're scared to put their art out there because they've been ripped off so many times and I was like, "Mm, I wouldn't mind being my own boss. I want to be able to protect art for my family and I want to do this stuff around yoga design on yoga mats seem to be where it all fit. Mm. So what I create is eco-friendly yoga mats that have Aboriginal artwork on them and they are a way for all people no matter where you are, who you are, what background you are, to find a way to practice something that's accessible, yoga, but also um, be conscious and mindful and find a way to connect with Aboriginal culture here.
0: Hmm. I think it, uh, I really like it. It's such a cool thing and it's called Jarron Street. Jaron Street, yeah. Yep. Okay, we can do a little promo on here. am oh, sure. I'm, allowed, Plug it. There I'm we sure I'm allowed to do that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the thing I found fascinating with that when we first started talking about that, that uh, – I'm one of those people that have travelled the world, um, yeah, you know, for spiritual enlightenment, um, yoga retreats and meditation retreats in Nepal and over in uh, over in uh, different parts of Asia. And uh, I've also, through my experiences with uh, the Barraville community, they were kind enough to introduce me to some uh, old fellas that would uh, take take me out and uh, sit down, and it was basically meditating. and the sort of light bulb moment for me was, hold it, I've been seeking this Eastern culture and all these other spiritual um, you know, ways of dealing, dealing with things, um, travelling the world. And here, as you said, the oldest culture here and exactly what they were saying and the, the same feeling I came out after spending time with them is how I feel when I walk out of a meditation or yoga class halfway across the world. So, yeah, it's something that I th- hope people can uh, tune into because I think there's so much there to offer. And uh, besides that, the yoga mats look so cool with the Aboriginal artwork.
1: Yeah, so one of the artists is actually my auntie, Joanne Cassidy. So she's with Balgara Designs and she was the first person that – or herself. so there's three artists that I've got, Liz Maloney, Ella Gillespie and my auntie Jo. And it was just finding a way to protect their their artworks as well. Yeah. Um, But I think the biggest barrier for people in Australia or one of the biggest barriers is that even if they want to connect, they don't know how to like Aboriginal culture and – this is a safe way to do that. You're not stepping on anyone's toes. You're not doing anything that you feel uncomfortable with.
0: It, it's interesting you say that because from a white fella's point of view, we're always worried about saying the wrong thing. Yeah. Uh, is this the right thing to say? Have we offended someone because we don't know? So that's an interesting way of uh, introducing it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a welcoming space for everybody that yeah. you can respectfully connect Um, And like, you know, when you see things like Aboriginal merchandise or whatever, it might have a slogan that a white person might not necessarily feel comfortable wearing or colours or flat, whatever it might be. This is not about any of that. This is about individuals finding a way to practice something for their well-being and mental health.
0: Yeah, well, I reckon it's so cool, Thank and uh, yeah, it, I, I hope it uh, hope it kicks along. And there's another project you've talked about that's been uh, floating around in your mind that I found quite interesting too. And it was about uh, telling the stories of Aboriginal policemen over the, over the years. Yeah, historical I historical um, stories, and you're worried about them being lost.
1: Absolutely, I think that like what we've discussed this entire time the willingness for aboriginal people to come to the table and have these conversations and look at solutions yeah. that has never been lacking and there has always been a, an aboriginal presence in policing yeah. and that was or aw- that was born out of wanting to contribute to something better and i am not the first aboriginal police officer and I'm not the first to have left. And I'm, I'm not the first to have left feeling um, undervalued either. Mm. And I think that it's a learning opportunity to capture these stories so that if it can be applied in any other space, whether it's policing or not, that it's valuable.
0: Yeah. Well, that's something, that's something that um, we should talk further on. But, uh, you know, yeah. you've talked about a book or a podcast or whatever and get the stories out because I find it fascinating. That's something that uh, a lot of us don't uh, fully appreciate or understand.
1: Definitely. There's there's some things that have been, some of these stories have been shown in very small capacities and it's always like feel good stories, but we need to really dissect what the barriers are. And I was I benefited from Aboriginal police officers before me. They mentored me and paved the way for me. And, you know, some of those people are still in the job, some are not. But regardless, their contribution should be acknowledged and valued and talked about.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, Once again, I've learnt so much. Every time I sit down and talk to you, I I feel like I upskill a little bit uh, better understanding of uh, the perspectives from uh, uh, an Aboriginal mindset and uh, I thank you for that. It's a shame you're not no longer in the police. I respect your decision to leave, leave the police. It's just a shame that someone with all the skills that you've got, but I'm sure whatever you do outside the cops, uh, you're going to contribute. So good luck to you and thanks so much for coming on.
1: Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me.
0: Cheers. That was a different type of podcast for I Catch Killers. but being a cop, whether it's a uniform officer or a detective it was all about getting to understand your environment and the community you work in. If ever there is a time for police and our Aboriginal community to understand each other it is now. This episode was recorded the day before Sydney and the rest of Australia held a large Black Lives Matter protest. I marched in the protest, as did Jaron and the family. We're both nervous about what might happen at the protest and what the police response might be it was pleasing for all involved that it was a peaceful protest i hope after listening to jaron you might understand a little bit more what the protest was about the lessons i learned from bowerville taught me as a police officer like everyone else that we all carry some form of bias that greatly diminishes when you take the time to understand the people you are policing thanks for listening I Catch Killers is published by True Crime Australia, produced by Claire Harvey from The Sunday Telegraph and Dylan Adams at Made in Katana. I'm now an investigative journalist at News Corp Australia, attached to The Sunday Telegraph. If you like the podcast, please subscribe to our newspapers.
1: Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray.
0: Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.